Production. Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, August 16th, 2014. Today we'll be presenting the 12th segment of our presentation of Martin Luther's paper on the Jews and their lives, written in 1543. Martin Luther dedicated most of the last two parts of this treatise attempting to prove that Genesis 49.10, which is the promise that the scepter and lawgiver would not depart from Judah, was fulfilled in Palestine until the advent of the Christ. Doing that, he attempted to dispute Jewish claims that because the Jews of Judah, the Jews should rule the world. And Martin was countenancing that by attempting to prove that Christ held the scepter of Judah. While we can admire Luther's faith in Christ, and his insistence that the scripture cannot fail. He himself had to stretch beyond the limits of language and exegesis in order to make his point. And he had to ignore the actual history of Judea in the period between the Testaments. We will see that this evening. That approach does fail. Luther, blind to the identity of the children of Israel and their dispersions, could not see that these promises made by God were indeed kept outside of Palestine. Luther, amazingly, quoted 2 Samuel chapter 7 at length and skipped over verse 10 repeatedly, a verse containing a promise that indicates that the throne of David and the children of Israel would indeed be removed from Palestine. Here in part six of his dissertation, and we will hopefully present part six in its entirety this evening, Luther finally breaks away from his extended arguments in reference to Genesis 49.10 while addressing many other aspects of his assertions, his proofs, that the scepter was passed to Christ. Here he even addresses some of the arguments which we have been positing against him as we proceed through his paper, such as the rule of the Maccabees over Judea in the centuries before Christ. It's not that we contend with Luther concerning the Jews. Luther knew they were, Luther thought they were like the devil or like devils. We know that they are devils. Luther believed that the scriptures were fulfilled as they were stated, the promises to the children of Israel, the promises to David. But Luther, thinking that those things applied to the Jews, attempted with all sorts of logical and illogical statements to keep those things in Palestine. We know that there is no way that they could have been kept in Palestine, but they were indeed fulfilled outside of Palestine. The differences which we have with Luther in spirit are few, but in detail and in history and in biblical exegesis are many. 
simply because Martin Luther thought that the Jews were Israel and the Jews were Judah, he made a lot of mistakes. To commence with part six of On the Jews and Their Lies, and Martin Luther proceeds by saying, however, some among us may wonder how it is possible, and he began, he, he wrapped up part five with the beginning of a discussion of the promises in Jeremiah chapter 31 made to the children of Israel in respect of their always going to be a nation, and we will reiterate those promises in the opening pages of this presentation. However, some of us, some among us, may wonder how it is possible that at the time of Jeremiah and then up to the advent of the Messiah, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob existed and remained under the tribe of Judah or the throne of David, even though only Judah remained, whereas Israel was exiled. These persons must be informed that the kingdom of Israel was led into captivity and destroyed, that it never returned home and never will return home, and we should protest that the scriptures say precisely the opposite. And he goes on to say, but that Israel, or the seed of Israel, always continued to a certain extent under Judah, and that it was exiled with Judah and returned again with her. You may read about this in 1 Samuel, 1 Kings chapters 10 and 12, whereby he probably meant 11 and 12, and 2 Chronicles 30 and 31. Here you will learn that the entire tribe of Benjamin, thus a good part of Israel, remained with Judah, as well as the whole tribe of Levi, together with many members of the tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh, Asher, Issachar, and Zebulun, who remained in the country after the destruction of the kingdom of Israel, and who held to Hezekiah in Jerusalem, and helped to purge the land of Israel with idols. Furthermore, many Israelites dwelt in the cities of Judah. This is all true to an extent. It is not clear how Luther finds a remnant of Israel escaped from the Assyrians long before the fact in 1 Samuel. By citing 1 Kings, the first book of Kings, chapters 11 and 12, he is only referring to those of Israel who went over to Judah rather than submit to the paganism introduced by Jeroboam when he became king. But he's taking it for granted that those people were still there in Judah hundreds of years later at the, at the captivity, of, at the Babylonian captivity. But it is clear that a remnant of Israel did indeed remain in the land after the Assyrian invasions and captivities. And they are described as Luther cites, in 2 Chronicles chapters 30 and 31. From 2 Chronicles chapter 30, we'll read several verses, and it says, And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh, that they should come to the house of Yahweh at Jerusalem to keep the Passover 
unto Yahweh, God of Israel. Now this happened after the Assyrian had failed. For the king had taken counsel and his princes and all the congregation in Jerusalem to keep the Passover in the second month. For they could not keep it at that time efficiently. Neither had the people gathered themselves together to Jerusalem. And the thing pleased the king and all the congregation. So they established a decree to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba even to Dan. And, and that's simply um, the usual way that the Bible states the southernmost and northernmost points, cities of the children of Israel, that they should come to keep the Passover unto Yahweh God of Israel at Jerusalem. For they had not done it of a long time in such sort as it is written, so the post went with the letters from the king and his princes throughout all Israel and Judah, and according to the commandment of the king, saying, Ye children of Israel, turn again unto Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and he will return to the remnant of you that are escaped out of the hand of the kings of Assyria, and be not like your fathers, and like your brethren, which trespassed against Yahweh God of their fathers, who therefore gave them up to desolation, as you see in the Assyrian captivities. Now be ye not stiff-necked, as your fathers were, but yield yourselves unto Yahweh, and enter into his sanctuary, which he has sanctified forever, and serve Yahweh your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you, for if you turn again unto Yahweh, your brethren and your, and your children shall find compassion before them that lead them captive, so that they shall come again into this land. For Yahweh your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. So the posts passed from city to city throughout the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, even to Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. They mocked the notice, the appeal, which Hezekiah made to the people. Nevertheless, diverse of Asher and Manasseh and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Also in, hand, in Judah, the hand of God was to give them one heart to do the commandment of the king and of the princes by the word of Yahweh. And there were assembled at Jerusalem much people to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month, which is actually a month late. A very great congregation. For there were many in the congregation that were not sanctified, skipping to verse 17. Therefore the Levites had the charge of killing the Passovers for every one that was not clean to sanctify them unto Yahweh. For a multitude of the people, even many of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves. Yet did they eat the Passover otherwise than it was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, The good Lord pardons every one. So Hezekiah sent this notice out to all of these places, which had, by this time, suffered the Assyrian invasions and captivities and destruction of their cities for nearly 40 years. 
And the greater number of the people mock him. As the record states, a smaller number, diverse. That means a few. Only a smaller number from the remnant of perhaps five tribes appeared in Jerusalem, in addition to the remnant of Judah, Levi, and Benjamin. This does not establish that kings of Judah continued to reign over these people after the later Babylonian captivity, or that any of these people retained their identity throughout the intertestamental period. While a remnant of Israel was indeed left behind, the children of Israel had been mingled with the Canaanites for several centuries. The word of Yahweh said in reference to the Assyrian deportations in Amos chapter 9, verse 9, For lo, I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, meaning all the places to which they were driven. The records tell us that that would be Persia, Assyria, and Media, primarily. I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve. Yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. Luther is asserting that these people were destroyed. Yahweh says shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. Israel was removed from Palestine so that they could be cleansed from the Canaanites. And from that time, Israel in the wilderness became the focal point of Yahweh's people, which is absolutely evident in the beginning of Jeremiah chapter 31 in the, the prophecy of a new covenant, which Luther cites here, but he ignores the first half of the chapter. It's absolutely evident in Isaiah chapter 43. It's absolutely evident in Revelation chapter 12. To repeat a sentence from Luther here, he says, these persons must be informed that the kingdom of Israel was led into captivity and destroyed that it never returned home and never will return home, but that Israel or the seed of Israel always continued to a certain extent under Judah and that it was exiled with Judah and they returned again with her. And here it is obvious that Luther, oblivious to the identity of the tribes of Israel in captivity, writes them off entirely. The Catholic Church still does that today, even though the Bible refutes that all throughout the prophets and the New Testament. Then, because Luther understands that certain prophecies concerning Israel must be true, he insists upon finding their fulfillment in Palestine in spite of the many other prophecies which discuss those Israelites whom Luther writes off. The word of Yahweh says, not the least grain of those people will fall upon the earth. Luther says they've all been destroyed. They're never going to return. Luther gets his biblical 
ideas and commentaries from those Jews, Paul of Burgos and Nicholas of Lyra, who would more than love to see the real Israelites disappear. Back to Luther. He continues, Since we find so many Israelites living under the rule of the son of David, Jeremiah is not lying when he says that Levites and the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be found under the rule of David's house. And we would assert that Jeremiah never lied. But the truth is not necessarily as Luther sees it. He continues, All of these, or at least a number of them, were taken to Babylon and returned from it with Judah, as Ezra enumerates and recounts. Undoubtedly, many more returned of those who were led away under Sennacherib. Now, undoubtedly, he, he is, Luther is just making a conjecture. Since the Assyrian or Median kingdom was brought under the Persian rule through Cyrus, so that Judah and Israel were very likely able to join and return together from Babylon to Jerusalem and the land of Canaan. And that's just conjecture on Luther's part. For I know for certain that we find these words in Ezra 2.70, and all Israel, or all who were there from Israel, as he himself says in a parenthetical statement, that's his statement, lived in their towns. And how could they live there if they had not come back? In the days of Herod and of the Messiah, the land was again full of Israelites. For in the 70 weeks of Daniel, that is, in 490 years, they had assembled again. However, they did not again establish a kingdom. And when we examine Ezra, especially Ezra chapter 2, Ezra counted those of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi as all Israel. The people listed among the returnees, every one of them, are of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. Ezra doesn't list anybody returning from Babylon from the other tribes. However, because they're from three different tribes, Ezra could not have called them all Judah since only a portion of them were from Judah. Ezra called them all Israel because they were all of the Israelites who returned that Ezra knew. So all Israel, all of these people who returned, lived in these towns. Luther continues, Therefore, the present-day Jews are very ignorant teachers and indolent pupils of Scripture. When they allege that Israel has not yet returned, as though all of Israel would have to return. Actually, not all of Judah returned either, but only a small number. So we see that Luther is divided in his own mind here. As we gather from Ezra's enumeration. The majority of them remained in Babylon, as did Daniel, Nehemiah, and Mordecai themselves. So we see Luther accepted the fictional characters from the book of Esther, mentioning Mordecai here. Similarly, the majority of the Israelites remained in Media, though they perhaps traveled to Jerusalem for the high festivals and then returned to their homes again, as Luke writes in the Acts of the Apostles, Chapter 2, verse 5. 
And when we examine Acts chapter 2, those Israelites of Acts chapter 2 are called Judeans. Many Judeans descended from those who returned with Ezra, and it spread throughout the wider Greek world. In four, well, in, in, in um, approximately 500 years, 42,000 people could easily become millions. In fact, in the captivity of Egypt, in 180 years, if we examine the chronology properly, 75 people became millions. So imagine what 42,000 could do in prosperity, blessed from God, in 500 years. The Judeans of Acts chapter 2 were not Israelites of the ancient dispersions. They are called Judeans. They spoke Aramaic, and they spoke their own native languages from the lands in which they, were, in, in which they had dwelled. We see this in Paul of Tarsus. Paul of Tarsus was from Tarsus in Cilicia. His family was one of those Judean families. Paul says that he's a Judean who was of the tribe of Benjamin who dwelt in Colicia. We see that all throughout the book of Acts. Paul goes to all these Greek cities and Roman cities and runs into Judeans in synagogues because the Judeans had spread themselves throughout the Roman world. The people of Acts chapter 2 were certainly not Israelites of the ancient captivities. They were Judeans who had spread themselves throughout the Greco-Roman world and returned to Jerusalem three times a year as they were commanded under the law. Luther continues, God never promised that the kingdom or scepter of Israel would be restored like that of Judah, but he did promise this to Judah, the later had to recover it by virtue of God's promise that he would establish David's house and throne forever and not let it die out. For as Jeremiah declares here, God will not tolerate that anyone slander him by saying that he had rejected Judah and Israel entirely so that they should no longer be his people, and that David's throne should, be, should come to an end, as if he had forgotten his promise, when he had promised and pledged to David an eternal house, even though they would now have to sojourn in Babylon for a little while. Still, he says, it will remain an eternal house and kingdom. Again, Luther was blinded to 2 Samuel 7.10. And in all of the later scriptures which establish that the nations appearing in history after the time of the Exodus and culminating with the dispersion of Israelites in the Assyrian deportations, those nations were indeed the children of Israel, including much of Judah. The prophecy of Jeremiah, which Luther is referring to, is from Jeremiah chapter 31. And I'll read from verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel 
and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, though I was a husband to them, saith Yahweh. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Luther should have read that and compared it to Romans chapter 2. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they all shall know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus saith Yahweh, who gives us the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, who divides the sea when the waves roar thereof. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If those ordinances... Depart from before me, saith Yahweh. Then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus saith Yahweh, if the heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth search out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith Yahweh. Of course, heaven above cannot be measured, and heavenly bodies have not failed. So Israel has never been cast off and has always been a nation or a people. But none of that was ever fulfilled in the Jews. It is also amazing that Luther can cite this passage repeatedly, as he does here, and ignore the fact that the new covenant was a matter of prophecy and is stipulated to be made with the same people who were under the old covenant. Perhaps if Luther realized that, he'd have thrown up his hands in despair and went off into paganism. If we truly accept the scripture, we must also accept Christian Israel identity. There is no talk of Gentiles in the New Covenant. To continue with Luther, I am saying this to honor and to strengthen our faith and to shame the hardened unbelief of the blinded and stubborn Jews for whom God must ever and eternally be a liar, as though he had let David's house die out and forgotten his covenant and his oath sworn to David. For if they would admit that God is truthful, they would have to confess that the Messiah came 1,500 years ago so that David's house and throne should not be desolate for so long as they suppose. Just because Jerusalem has lain in ashes, and has been devoid of David's throne and house for so long. For if God kept his promise from the time of David to the Babylonian captivity, and from then to the days of Herod when the scepter departed, he must also have kept it subsequently and forever after, or else David's house is not an eternal but a perishable house, which is ceased together with the scepter at the time of Herod. And again, Luther insists upon reading Genesis 49.10 to mean the opposite of what it says. Luther insists that the Messiah comes when the scepter departs. The text says 
that the scepter shall not depart until the Messiah comes. Luther does well to consistently note the nature of the Jews, who are indeed themselves eternal liars, but he's twisting this scripture to make it fit the history of Palestine. And that is absolutely contrary to the meaning of the scripture. Luther continues, but as we have already said, God will not tolerate this. No, David's house will be everlasting, like day and night, and the ordinances of heaven and earth, as Jeremiah puts it, citing Jeremiah 33:25, which we will get to shortly. However, since the scepter of Judah was lost at the time of Herod, it cannot be eternal unless the son of David, the Messiah, has come, seated himself on David's throne, and become Lord of the world. If the Jews are correct, then David's house must have been extinct for 1,568 years. Contrary to God's promise and oath, this is impossible to believe. Now, this is a thorough ex exposition of the matter, and no Jew can adduce anything to refute it. Outwardly, he may pretend that he does not believe it, but his heart and his conscience are devoid of anything to contradict it. Now, the next to the last king of Judah, before the Babylonian captivity, was Jeconiah, a name sometimes, sometimes spelled as Jehoiachin, it should be Jeconiah, who is also referred to as simply Coniah in Jeremiah. Three times he only calls him Coniah instead of Jeconiah. Luther must have been aware of Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 28 and 29, which say of Coniah, Jeconiah, the king of Judah, is this man, Keniah, a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel wherein there is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land which they know not, meaning Babylon? O earth, 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 hear the word of Yahweh. Thus saith Yahweh, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. The last king of Judah before the captivity was Zedekiah, the uncle of Jeconiah. Of him, Jeremiah wrote in chapter 39 of his prophecy. Then the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah in Riblah before his eyes. Also, the king of Babylon slew all the nobles of Judah. Now, when this happened, Jeconiah and his family were already in captivity, taken off to Babylon. Zedekiah was appointed by the king of Babylon in his place and double-crossed the king of Babylon. So Zedekiah's family and the nobles which remained were destroyed. 
Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with chains to carry him to Babylon. So Zedekiah has no sons at this point. He has daughters, but they're taken out of Palestine by Jeremiah. He has no sons. They're all dead. Jeconiah had sons who survived him. As even Matthew chapter 1, verse 11, attests. And his line is traced down to Joseph, the stepfather of Christ. However, Jeconiah was written off as childless to the effect that none of his sons were permitted to take up his inheritance. None of them ever sat on the throne of David. It was prohibited by Scripture. Yet here, Luther makes a clear reference to Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 25, in relation to the throne of David. In that chapter of Jeremiah, we see the prophet wrote the following, which we have abbreviated somewhat for our purposes here. We'll read some of the verses from verse 14. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will perform a good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jeremiah shall dwell safe I'm sorry, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called Yahweh our righteousness. Now this prophecy indeed points to the Messiah. But he only becomes king. He only takes the throne of David at the second advent, which is a matter of prophecy that has not yet been fulfilled. From verse 17, For thus saith Yahweh, David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. Thus saith Yahweh, verse 20, If you can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night, and that there should be not be day and night near season, then may also my covenant be broken with David my servant, that he should not have a son to reign upon his throne. Verse 22. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the seed of David my servant. The seed is being multiplied for a reason, because Israel by now is many nations. Moreover, the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah, saying, Considerest thou not what this people have spoken, saying, The two families which Yahweh has chosen, he even cast them off. Thus they have despised my people, that they should no more be a nation before them. This is talking about the deported Israelites. Thus saith Yahweh, if my covenant be not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then will I cast away the seed of Jacob and David my servant, so that I will not take any of the seed to be rulers over the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If the promise of the throne was certain to the seed of David, Luther cannot find it in Palestine. 
Jeconiah, his descendants, were forbidden. Zedekiah, his descendants, were slain. Were there other descendants of David in Palestine? Yes, but there's not one scripture that ever affords any of them to sit on a throne of David. Not one. Anywhere. Yet Luther insists that it was there. But he never specifically identifies it. In spite of the fact that Jeremiah stated it would not be found in Jeconiah, and it could not be found in Zedekiah. The promises to David must have been fulfilled in another manner. However, Luther is blind to Israel in their dispersions. To continue with Luther, and how could God have maintained the honor of his divine truthfulness, having promised David an eternal house and throne? If he then let it stand, desolate, longer than intact. Let us figure this out. In the opinion of the Jews, the time from David to Herod covers not quite a thousand years. David's house or throne stood for that length of time, inclusive of the 70 years spent in Babylon. And we would contest that. And Luther has, an, has a... Um, parenthetical statement here, which I would disagree with, where he says, we would add over a hundred years to this total. Then he says, from Herod's time, or rather let us say, for this is not far from correct, from the destruction of Jerusalem to the year 1542, there are 1568 years, as stated above. And Luther is writing this in 1543, so I don't know how I don't know what he's looking for in 25 BC, that there must be a gloss. According to this computation, I'm sorry, he's writing this in 1643, so that's correct. I apologize. According to this computation, David's house and throne has been empty four or five hundred years longer than it was occupied. Now inquire of stone and log whether such may be called an eternal house especially constructed by God and preserved by his sublime faithfulness and truthfulness, a house that stands for 1,000 years and lies in ashes for 14 or 1,500 years. And the only way to answer that would be not to skip over 2 Samuel 7.10, but as we saw in part 5 of Luther's dissertation on the Jews and their lies. He read extensively in support of his arguments concerning the eternity of the throne of David from 2 Samuel chapter 7. But he kept skipping over 2 Samuel 7.10. He did not realize the impact when Yahweh told David that he was going to move his people Israel. Moving the people necessitates moving the throne, if the throne should stay over the people. Yahweh moved the people. Luther understands that the people, for the most part, were moved out of Palestine 
but he didn't understand the impact of the prophecy and that the throne would have to move with the people. He continues, Though to choose be as hard or harder than the diamond, the lightning and thunder of such clear and manifest truth should smash or at least soften them. But as I said before, our faith is cheered thereby. It is strengthened. It is made sure and certain that we do have the true Messiah who surely came and appeared at the time when Herod took away the scepter of Judah and the Safra, the Aramaic word for lawgiver, so that David's house might be eternal and forever have a son upon his throne, as God said and swore to him and made a covenant with him. In my estimation, one of Luther's greatest mistakes was his insistence upon engagement with the Jews. You could describe the Jews without engaging with them. By engaging with the Jews, Luther took for granted many of their claims concerning their identity, claims which are patently false, and he argued with them on their own terms, which are by necessity biased in their favor. If the scales had been lifted from Luther's eyes in regards to the identity of the Jews, Luther may have looked for the fulfillment of these scriptures by another means. Christian Israel identity therefore requires two realizations that the Jews are not who they say they are, and that Christians are not who they think they are. And the only way to understand the truth of Scripture is Christian Israel identity. You cannot hold these promises to Palestine. Luther is inverting, contorting, perverting Scripture in order to maintain that these promises were fulfilled in Palestine. They certainly were not. He continues, some crafty Jew might, well, every Jew is crafty. Some crafty Jew might try to cast up to me my book against the Sabbatarians, in which I demonstrated that the word eternity often means not really an eternity, but merely a long time. Thus, Moses says in Exodus 21.6 that the master shall take the slave who wants to stay with him and bore through his ear with an awl on the door. And then he quotes, and he shall serve him eternally. Here the word designates a human eternity, that is, a lifetime. But I also said in the same treatise that when God uses the word eternal, it is a truly divine eternity. And I have a problem with this even. Luther is attempting to make an, array, an argument of convenience, and he does that quite often. The words of Exodus 21.6 are indeed the words of Yahweh. They are not the words of Moses, unless Moses lied. Luther continues, and he commonly adds another phrase to the effect that it shall not be otherwise as in Psalm 110, verse 4. 
the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Similarly, in Psalm 132, verse 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back, etc. However, such a not, the word not is what he's referring to. However, such a not, wherever such a not is added, this means surely eternal and not otherwise. Thus we read in Isaiah 9, 7, of peace there will be no end. And in Daniel 7, 14, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is eternal not before men who do not live eternally, but before God who lives eternally. The promise states that David's house and throne shall be eternal before God. He says, before me, before me, a son shall forever sit upon your throne. In Psalm 89, 33 through 37, he also adds the little word not. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His lying shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. It shall stand firm while the skies endure. The last words of David convey the same thought. He has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. These words, ordered and secure, mean the same as firm, sure, eternal, never failing. The same applies to the saying of Jacob in Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart. This is important. We can't gloss over this one. The scepter shall not depart. Not depart signifies eternally until the Messiah comes. And that surely means eternally for all the prophets assigned to the Messiah an eternal kingdom, a kingdom without end. All along, for the last two and a half parts of this thesis, Luther has been arguing that the Messiah had to come because, with Herod, the scepter departed. Reading the verse both ways, those ways are not equal. You can't simply flip the subject and the object of a sentence at any given reading and read it however the hell you want to. But that's what Luther's doing. All along, he's been saying that it really means that the Messiah will come when the scepter departs. The verse can only be read one way. And here, Luther reads it correctly because it's suddenly convenient for him to do so. In some ways, Luther was a man of great faith, don't get me wrong, he was a man of great courage, but in, in some ways, he was a dishonest man because he twisted scripture to fit his liking whenever he felt that it was convenient. He continues, but if we assume that this refers to a human or temporal eternity or an indefinite period of time, which is impossible, then the meaning would necessarily be as follows. 
Your house shall be eternal before me. That is, your house shall stand as long as it stands or for your lifetime. This would pledge and promise David the equivalent of exactly nothing. For even in the absence of such an oath as David's house would stand eternally, that is, as long as it stands or as long as he lives. But let us dismiss such nonsense from our minds, which would occur to none but a blind rabbi, when Scripture glories in the fact that God did not want to destroy Judah because of the sins committed under Rehoboam, but that a lamp should remain to David as God has promised him regarding his house, 2 Kings 8.19, it shows that all understood the word eternal in its true sense. Luther is presenting the arguments of the Jews, which are indeed convoluted, and correctly exhibiting them as being ridiculous, Luther should not have been engaging with Jews. And then he would not have to contend with their convoluted arguments. The Jews, as Christ tells us, are born liars. There's no sense arguing with liars. Christians, should they believe Christ, would not bother with Jews. To continue... Someone might also cite here the instance of the Maccabees, and we've been confronting Luther's presentation with this all along. After Antiochus, the noble, had ruthlessly ravaged the people and the country so that the princes of the house of David became extinct, which isn't quite true, the Maccabees ruled, who were not of the house of David, but of the tribe of the priests, which meant that the scepter had departed from Judah and that a son of David did not sit eternally on the throne of David. Thus, the eternal house of David could not really be eternal, not in Palestine. We reply, the Jews cannot disturb us with this argument, and we need not answer them, for none of this is found in Scripture. This is important. This is Luther dismissing the books of the Maccabees. Because Malachi is the last prophet, and that's true, and Nehemiah the last historian, and that's crazy, who, as we can gather from, from his book, lived until the time of Alexander. Therefore, both parties must rely, so far as this question is concerned, on Jeremiah's statement that the son of David was to occupy his throne or rule forever. For apart from Scripture, whoever wants to concern himself with this may regard it as an open question whether the Maccabees themselves ruled or whether they served the rulers, which is not documented anywhere. As to the reliability of the historians, we shall have some comments later on, and we'll have to wait till future parts of this presentation to see them. We can call Malachi the last prophet, 
as Luther did, and that even makes sense in respect of Malachi's prophecy and the fact that no later prophet is cited in the New Testament. Malachi dates himself, and he is very likely the last prophet. He is very likely in the correct place in the Old Testament, both in the um, contextual sense and in the prophetic sense and in the historical sense. There's no doubt. However, it is still a presumption in many ways and can't be proven. Yet it is even more arbitrary. It's absolutely arbitrary to insist that Nehemiah was the last historian. And even though Nehemiah's own book proves, and we'll show that tonight, that he preceded Ezra, something which Luther did not understand, there is no proof anywhere that Ezra is the last historian that Christians may consider. Where does the scripture say that? Where does it say Nehemiah was the last historian that scriptures may consider? Where does it say that Christians are limited to the books in the Bible for historical information? Or to the books of canon? This assertion of Luther's borders on the ridiculous. And hopefully, he will state his reasons for making them later on as he states here. If Nehemiah lived until the time of Alexander, he was indeed a modern Methuselah. Rather, it can be established that Nehemiah was the governor of Judea appointed by the Persians from 502 through 490 B.C. Ezra was the governor of Judea, appointed by the Persians from 458 B.C. There are no records from the time of Ezra and the last prophet, Malachi, until the books of the Maccabees and the histories of Josephus. Any, um, I've never seen any history book, secular or religious, that um, that survived to this day, which fills in any of the historical details. I mean the details. I don't mean the generalities offered by the secular historians. I mean the exacting historical details of life and politics in Palestine between the time of Ezra, 458 B.C., and the books of the Maccabees, or what Josephus has in his histories. And Josephus is very, very sketchy and has very, very little information which can add to that between 458 and 156, maybe, B.C., very little. He records, um, 
Alexander coming into Jerusalem and how he was well-received, he records Alexander's destruction of Tyre. And that's about it. Everything else is pretty sketchy. He has a hundred and something year gap in between Ezra and Nehemiah and Alexander. And he has another hundred and something year gap in between Alexander and the days of the Maccabees. That's more like a hundred and sixty or hundred and seventy year gap. So Josephus does not fill in a lot of that period. He has barely anything to help us in that. But it is clear from the, from the narratives which we do have that during the intertestamental period, the descendants of Jeconiah never ruled over Judea. The people from Judah never ruled over Judea. And that priests sat as the governors for at least a great portion of that time. It doesn't, it's not, the, the histories in Josephus and the Maccabees are not convenient to Luther's argument. It's Luther insisting that Nehemiah is the last historian. Luther would apparently like to leave the period as a black hole, and then he could just write what he feels about it, whatever is convenient to his argument. Luther is being dishonest. It is telling that here Luther clearly rejects the books of the Maccabees in favor of leaving the intertestamental period a complete unknown. That way he could think of that, of that period whatever he desires. The Luther Bible was published in 1534. At least Luther is consistent in this. It was the first major Christian Bible to separate what we now know as the Apocrypha, as Luther had called it, and publish those books in a separate section between the Testament. The Bibles before that published those books as part of the Old Testament. Luther published them separately because he doubted the canonicity of the books. Now, we can doubt some of them, but we have to understand that not all of the apocryphal books are equal. Some of them are absolutely legitimate, and a couple of them are fairy tales, and that can be established. Now, Luther sought to do the same thing to Esther, However, that book was ultimately left in his Old Testament. Luther even contended with the canonicity of some of the New Testament. He contended with Hebrews, James, Jude, and the Revelation, which is, to me, incredible. However, the book known as 1 Maccabees is certainly of great historical value. It is corroborated by the history of Josephus, and it has many witnesses as to its validity. 
especially in the history of the subsequent period. The book of Maccabees cannot be dismissed. However inconvenient it is to Luther's argument concerning Judas Scepter and the throne of David. In the first six chapters of the book of Ezra, we see that Ezra recorded what had happened before his time, up to the building of the temple in Ezra chapter 6. Most of these things in his first six chapters of Ezra are also recorded in the book of Nehemiah. Then in Ezra chapter 7, we read, it begins with the words, Now after these things, and Ezra begins to record his own commission and his return to Jerusalem. And this is corroborated in Ezra chapter 9, where we see that the house of God and the wall of the city had already been built. Reading the book of Nehemiah, it was commissioned, Nehemiah was commissioned to build the wall. Zerubbabel, before him, was commissioned to build the temple. The book of Nehemiah records that he did rebuild the wall. In Nehemiah chapter 3, however, the wall had not yet been built, and Nehemiah requests to build it. Therefore, Nehemiah must have preceded Ezra, and he did, as it could be established by well over 40 years. I'm going to read uh, Nehemiah 2, verse 17. And Nehemiah says, Then I said unto them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. And Nehemiah records that he did build the wall. Ezra chapter 9, verse 9 says, For we were bondmen, yet our God has not forsaken us in our bondage, but has extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God and to repair the desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Nehemiah speaks of building the wall in the future tense, and Ezra speaks as it was already built in the past tense. Therefore, Nehemiah preceded Ezra. He didn't follow him. Just a side note. There's a paper of Christogenia that demonstrates the chronology of um, Ezra and Nehemiah. It's called Notes Concerning Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. I don't know if it's on a menu. It might be under the articles menu, under Bible topics. To continue with Luther, it seems to me, however, that the following incident recorded in Scripture should not be treated lightly. At the time of Queen Athaliah, 
For fully six years, no son of David occupied his throne. She, Athaliah, the tyrant, reigned alone. She had had all the male descendants of David slain, with the single exception of Joash, an infant, a quarter or half a year old, who had been secretly removed, hidden in the temple, and reared by the excellent Jehosheba, the wife of the priest Jehoiada, daughter of King Joram and sister of King Ahaziah, whom Jehu slew. Here, the eternal covenant of God made with David was in great peril, indeed, resisting, I'm sorry, resting on one young lad in hiding, who was far from occupying the throne of David. At this time, his house resembled a dark lantern in which the light is extinguished, since a foreign queen, a Gentile from Sidon, was sitting and reigning on David's throne. However, she burned her backside thoroughly on that throne. Luther takes for granted that Athaliah was a daughter of Jezebel. I've seen that often. Yet nowhere is the assertion found in Scripture. Luther also takes for granted that Jezebel was a Gentile. Yet there is nothing definitive in Scripture or history determining her race, and many Israelites had dwelt in Sidon, as the Scripture attests. While Ahab had two sons from Jezebel sit on the throne over Israel after his own death, and it is recorded that Jezebel was indeed their mother, Ahab had 70 sons, and Jezebel was not the mother of them all. He must have had some daughters with those 70 sons. Ahab had many wives. And Athaliah, while she was called the daughter of Ahab, she was never called the daughter of Jezebel. Many interpreters of Scripture have only taken that for granted. She was almost certainly not the daughter of Jezebel. And while Athaliah, was not of the seed of David. The six-year gap does not nullify the promise to David, for Joash was still around to sit on the throne after his wicked mother was taken out of the way, as Luther explains in his next paragraph, where he says, Still, all of this did not mean that the scepter had departed or that God's eternal covenant was broken. For even if the light of David was not shining brightly at this time, it was still glimmering in that child Joash, who would again shine brightly in the future and rule. He was already born as a son of David, and these six years were nothing but a tenacio, a temptation. God often gives the appearance that he is unmindful of his word and is failing us. This he did with Abraham when he commanded him to burn the ashes, his dear son Isaac, to burn two ashes, his dear son Isaac, in whom, after all, God's promise of the eternal seed was embodied. Likewise, when he led the children of Israel from Egypt, in fact, he seemed to be leading them into death with the sea before them, high cliffs on both sides, 
and the enemy at their back blocking their way of escape. But matters proceeded according to God's words and promises. The sea had to open, move, and make way for them. If the sea had not done this, then the cliff had to split asunder and make a path for them. And they would have squeezed and squashed Pharaoh between them. He drowned the foe. For all creatures would rather have to perish a thousand times should fail and deceive, however strange things may appear. Thus, Joash is king through and in God's word and occupies the throne of David before God, although he still lies in the cradle. Yes, even if he lay dead and buried underground, for in spite of all, he would have to rise like Isaac from the ashes. It is important to know that Luther feels it a serious matter to justify these six years where a son of David does not actually sit on the throne, but is still living and will sit on the throne. And he makes a special explanation, a lengthy special explanation here for these six years. Yet, Luther cannot explain which son of David actually sat on the throne for 600 years after the Babylonian captivity. And that doesn't seem to bother him. That's not important to him. In the following paragraph, he attempts to explain himself. And he says, In such a manner, we might also account for that story of the Maccabees. But this is unnecessary, for it has an entirely different meaning. The Babylonian captivity might be viewed similarly. However, thanks to splendid prophets and miracles, the situation at that time was much brighter. But Joash posed a terrible temptation for the house of David against the covenant and oath of God. Although the house and rule of David still flourished, it was the only ruler. It was only the ruler or the head that was suffering, and it faltered in God's covenant. But this is the manner of his divine grace that he sometimes plays and jokes with his own. He hides himself and disguises himself so that he may test us to see whether we will firm, remain firm in the faith and love towards him, just as a father sometimes does with his children. Such jesting of our Heavenly Father pains us immeasurably, since we do not understand it. However, this is not out of place here. The sons of Zedekiah are all dead. The sons of Jeconiah are disinherited. Who was ever thereafter the ruler over Israel in Palestine? How is that situation brighter, as Luther explains it, than in the time of Joash? Luther dismisses a total lack of evidence with a vague generality. He'll... he'll take great pains to explain six years, but he doesn't care about the explanation the same or a, a, a parallel explanation for a period 
of 600 years. That's incredible. He writes it off. He continues. We have been speaking about a statement of Jeremiah. We will now turn our attention to one of the last prophets. In Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, we read, For thus says Yahweh of hosts, Once again, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the consolation of the Gentiles, and he says that the Hebrew word is kendav, so that the consolation of the Gentiles shall come, and I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The splendor of this latter house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. This is another of those passages which pains the Jews intensely. They test it, twist it, interpret, and distort almost every word, just as they do the statement of Jacob in Genesis 49. But it does not help them. Their conscience pales before this passage. It senses that their glosses are null and void. Lyra, he's mentioning that Jew again, Nicholas of Lyra. Lyra does well when he plies them hard with the phrase ad hoc modicum in a little while. They cannot elude him, as we shall see. In a little while, he says, cannot possibly mean a long period of time. Lyra is surely right here. No one can deny it, not even a Jew. Try as hard as he may. In a little while, he says, the consolation of the Gentiles will come. After this temple is built, that is, he will come when this temple is still standing. And the splendor of this te later temple will be greater than that of the former. And this will happen shortly, i.e., in a little while. For, this, for it is easily understood that if the consolation of the Gentiles, whom the ancients interpret as the Messiah, did not come while that temple was still standing, Haggai was a, a prophet of the second temple period. So he's referring, of course, to the second temple. But it's still to come. The Jews have been waiting 1,568 years already since the destruction of that temple, and this cannot be termed a little while, especially since they cannot foresee the end of this long time. Then he will never come, for he neglected to come in this little short time and has now entered upon the great long time, which will never result in anything, for the prophet speaks of a short, not a long time. Now, Luther takes for granted that the Gentiles of Haggai are not Israelites, when in reality they are the nations which proceeded out of Israel, which Paul explains 
in Romans chapter 4 and many other times in Romans. Indeed, the verse preceding what Luther recorded from Haggai states, verse 5 of Haggai chapter 2, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains among you, fear ye not. There was never any covenant with Gentiles, and therefore the nations of Haggai must be the dispersions of Israel. We see see that here Luther follows Lyra in his argument. Nicholas of Lyra was a converso Jew who upheld the identity of the Jews and the false Jew-Gentile paradigm which the Jews have relied upon to maintain their own false assertions concerning their identity for 2,000 years. The differences among the recipients of the gospel message were that some of them were remnant Israelites who kept the law and the covenants. Some of them were dispersed, divorced Israelites who were estranged from the law and the covenants. They were the nations. They were the nations that sprung from Abraham's seed as Paul explains in Romans chapter 4. Christ came for all of these Israelites, those of the remnant and those of the dispersions, but he never came for any Gentiles. To continue with Luther, but they extricate themselves from this difficulty, meaning when the consolation of the nations would come. They extricate themselves from this difficulty as follows. Since they cannot ignore the words in a little while, they take up and crucify the expression consolation of the Gentiles. In Hebrew, kemdath, just as they did earlier with the words Shabbat and Shiloh in the saying of Jacob, meaning lawgiver and peace, in Genesis 49.10. They insist that this term does not refer to the Messiah, but that it designates the gold and silver of all the Gentiles. And and this is pretty good because this next few paragraphs from Luther shows us exactly what is on the mind of the Jews first. And we've seen that play out in Jewish history. And it also tells us exactly what Luther already knew about the Jews and felt about the Jews. They insist that this term does not refer to the Messiah, but that it designates the gold and silver of all the Gentiles. Grammatically, the word kendath really means desire or pleasure. Thus, it would mean that the Gentiles have a desire for or take pleasure and delight in something. So the text must be read thus. In a short time, the desire of all Gentiles will appear. And what does it mean? What do the Gentiles desire? Gold, silver, gems. You may ask why the Jews make this kind of gloss here. I will tell you, their breath stinks with lust for the Gentiles' gold and silver. For no nation under the sun is greedier than they were still are, 
and always will be, as is evident from their accursed usury. So they comfort themselves that when the Messiah comes, he will take the gold and silver of the whole world and divide it among them. Therefore, wherever they can quote scripture to satisfy their insatiable greed, they do so outrageously. One is led to believe that God and his prophets knew nothing else to prophesy them of ways and means to satisfy the bottomless greed of the accursed Jews with the Gentiles' gold and silver. Luther does well here to point out the evil interpretations of the Jews. If he had only realized why the Jews were devils. To continue, however, the prophet has not chosen his words properly to accord with this greedy understanding. He should have said, in a little while, the desire of the Jews shall come. For the Jews are the ones who desire gold and silver more avidly than any other nation on earth. In view of that, the text should more properly speak of the desire of the Jews than of the Gentiles. For although the Gentiles do desire gold and silver, nevertheless, here are the Jews who desire and covet this desire of the Gentiles, who desire that it may be brought to them so that they may devour it and leave nothing for the Gentiles. Why? Because they are the noble blood, the circumcised saints who have God's commandments and do not keep them, but are stiff-necked, disobedient, prophet murderers, arrogant usurers, and filled with every vice as the whole of Scripture and their present conduct bear out. Such saints, of course, are properly entitled to the Gentiles' gold and silver. They honestly and honorably deserve it for such behavior, just as the devil deserves paradise and heaven. And Luther was so close to the truth, but he didn't quite get it. Only the providence only the providence of Yahweh God could have kept him in this darkness. He continues. Further, how does it happen that such very intelligent teachers and wise holy prophets do not also apply the word desire to all the other desires of the Gentiles? For the Gentiles desire not only gold and silver, but also pretty girls, and the women desire handsome young men. Wherever we find among the Gentiles anything other than Jews, and he makes a parenthetical statement here where he says, I almost said misers, who will not bestow any good on their bodies, Luther telling us the Jews would not bestow any good on their bodies. They desire also, in other words, they don't bathe and change their clothes. 
They also desire beautiful houses, gardens, cattle, and property, as well as good times, clothes, food, drink, dancing, playing, and all sorts of enjoyment. Why then did the Jews not interpret this verse of the prophet to mean that such desires of all the Gentiles also will shortly come to Jerusalem, so that the Jews alone might fill the to fill their bellies and feast on the world's joys. For such a mode of life, Muhammad promises his Saracens. In that respect, he is a genuine Jew, and the Jews are genuine Saracens, according to this interpretation. And Luther was also truthful in this regard. And actually being sarcastic, he scarcely knew how close he was to the truth, for Muhammad certainly was a Jew and a devil. To continue with Luther, the Gentiles have another desire. How could these wise, clever interpreters overlook it? I am surprised at it. The Gentiles die and they are afflicted with much sickness, poverty, and all kinds of distress and fear. For there is not one of them who does not most ardently wish that he did not have to die, that he could avoid need, misery, and sickness, or be quickly freed from them and secure against them. This desire is so pronounced that they would gladly surrender all others for its fulfillment, as experience shows daily. Why then? Do the Jews not explain that such desire of all the Gentiles will also come to the temple in Jerusalem in a little while? Shame on you, here, there, or wherever you may be, you damned Jews, that you dare to apply this earnest, glorious, comforting word of God so despicably to your mortal, greedy belly which is doomed to decay, that you are not ashamed to display your greed so openly. You are not worthy at looking at the outside of the Bible, much less of reading it. You should only read the Bible that is found under the sow's tail in a pig's ass and eat and drink the letters that drop from there. That would be a Bible for such prophets who root about like sows and tear apart like pigs the words of the divine majesty, which should be heard with all honor, awe, and joy. Perhaps Luther would be comforted to know that the people he called Jews were devils in the Old Testament as well as the New. To continue with Martin Luther, furthermore, when the prophet says that the splendor of this later house shall be greater than the former, let us listen to the noble and filthy, and he says, I, mean, I meant to say circumcised, he's being sarcastic once again, let us listen to the noble and filthy saints and wise prophets who want to make Jews of us Christians. The greater splendor of the latter temple compared to the former consists, they say, in this. That is, that it, meaning the temple of Haggai, the second temple, stood ten years longer than the temple of Solomon. 
Alas, if they only had a good astronomer who could have worked out the time a little more precisely, perhaps he would have found the difference between the two to be three months, two weeks, five days, seven hours, 12 minutes, and 10 and a half minutes over and above the 10 years. If there were a store anywhere that offered blushes for sale, I might give the Jews a few florins or, or coins to go and buy a pound of them to smear over their forehead, eyes, and cheeks as if they would refuse to cover their impudent heart and tongue with them. He's saying that the Jews can't blush from their shame. They should go buy themselves some blushes, and they still wouldn't use them. Or do these ignorant, stupid asses suppose that they are talking to sticks and blocks like themselves? There were many old, gray men and women, very likely also beggars and villains in Jerusalem, when Solomon, a young man of 20 years, became a glorious king. Should these, for that reason, be more glorious than Solomon? Perhaps David's mule, on which Solomon became king, was older than Solomon. Should he, by reason of that, be greater than Solomon? But thus those will bump their heads, stumble, and fall, who incessantly give God the lie and claim that they are in the right, that they deserve no better fate than to compose such glosses on the Bible, such foolishness and ignominy. This they indeed do most diligently. Therefore, dear Christian, be on your guard against the Jews, as you discover here, are consigned by the wrath of God to the devil, who has not only robbed them of a proper understanding of Scripture, but also of ordinary human reason, shame, and sense, and only works mischief with the Holy Scripture through them. Therefore, they cannot be trusted and believed in any other matter either, even though a truthful word may drop from their lips occasionally. For anyone who dares to juggle the awesome word of God so frivolously and shamefully as you see it done here, and as you also noted with early, earlier with regard to the words of Jacob, cannot have a good spirit dwelling in him. Therefore, wherever you see a genuine Jew, you may with good conscience cross yourself and bluntly say, there goes a devil incarnate. Luther should have ascended, extended his thesis to all Jews and would have done better with this understanding, which was from his spirit, from his spiritual discernment than to have allowed himself to be influenced in matters of Old Testament interpretation by the likes of Lyra and Bergensis, men who he never met. They lived a hundred and two hundred years before him, but they were converso Jews. However, if the Lutherans of today had only followed their leader, and understood that at least the religious Jews were devils, Europe would be a far better place, and so would America. Luther 
at least consign the Jews to being devils. And they are, even if he did not understand, as Christ did, that their origin was with the devil. He goes on to say, These impious scoundrels know very well that their ancient predecessors applied this verse of Haggai to the Messiah, as Lyra, Bergensis, and others testify. And we see that Luther was um, educated by Lyra and Bergensis. He quotes them all the time. He copies their arguments. And here he's probably referring to the Talmud. And he continues, And still, they wantonly depart from this and compose their own Bible out of their own mad heads, so that they hold their wretched Jews with them in their error, in violation of their conscience and to our vexation. They think that in this way they are hurting us greatly, and that God will reward them wherever for his sake, as they imagine. They have opposed us Gentiles, even in open, evident truth. But what happens, as you have seen, is that they disgrace themselves and do not harm us, and further, forfeit God and his scripture. Thus, the verse reads, once again, He's quoting Haggai again, verse too late. Once again, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. These are the islands of the sea. And the kandat, or consolation, of all Gentiles shall come. That is, the Messiah, the desire of all Gentiles, which we translated into the German with the word trost or consolation. The, the word desire does not fully express this thought, since in German it reflects the inward delight and desire of the heart. But here, the word designates the external thing which a heart longs for. It would surely not be wrong to translate it with the joy and all delight of the Gentiles. In brief, it is the Messiah who would be the object of displeasure, disgust, and abomination for the unbelieving and hardened Jews, as Isaiah 53 prophecies. And it must be interjected that Isaiah did not prophesy such in relation to today's Jews. Today's Jews are the bad figs to which the punished of Judah were surrendered after the time of Christ, as Jeremiah chapter 19 describes. Luther continues and says, The Gentiles, on the other hand, would bid him welcome as their heart's joy, delight, and every wish and desire. For he brings them deliverance from sin, death, devil, hell, and every evil eternally. This is indeed the Gentiles' desire, their heart's delight, joy, and comfort. Because the so-called Gentiles of Europe are indeed the dispersed of Israel. Luther just couldn't get to that point. 
disagrees with the saying of Jacob in Genesis 49.10, and to Shiloh, or the Messiah, shall be the obedience of the peoples. That is to say, they will receive him gladly, hear his word, and become his people without coercion, without the sword. It is as if he wished to say, the ignoble, uncircumcised Gentiles will do this. But my noble rascals, my circumcised, lost children will not do it. Luther has this all confused. But will rather rave and rant against it. Isaiah 2.2 2 and Micah 4.1 also agree with this. And he quotes, It shall come to pass in later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, doubtless voluntarily motivated by desire and joy. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Thus the prophets speak throughout of the kingdom of the Messiah established among the Gentiles. Now, the last 25 chapters of Isaiah, as well as Micah chapters 1 and 2, Hosea chapters 1 and 2, and elsewhere, all establish that those so-called Gentiles are indeed the truly lost children of Israel, the dispersions of Israel. While the modern Jews are actually the Canaanite, Edomite enemies of both Yahweh God and true Israel. Micah chapter 4 establishes that these people flowing into this house of Yahweh established as the highest of the mountains were indeed the nations of dispersed Israel. Luke just couldn't see that. It wasn't granted him to see that. And he continues, yes, this is it. This is the bone of contention. That is the source of the trouble that makes the Jews so angry and foolish and spurs them to arrive at such an accursed meaning, forcing them to pervert all the statements of Scripture so shamefully. Namely, they do not want, they cannot endure that we Gentiles should be their equal before God, and that the Messiah should be our comfort and joy as well as theirs. And of course, he's not theirs. He even said that he was not theirs. You don't believe me because you're not my sheep. You're of your father the devil. The Judeans who claimed to be Judah but were truly of the synagogue of Satan. Luther just just seems to be oblivious to so many verses. I say, before they would have us Gentiles, whom they incessantly mock, curse, damn, defame, and revile, share the Messiah with them, and be called their co-heirs and brethren, they would crucify ten more Messiahs and kill God himself 
if this were possible, together with all angels and all creatures, even at the risk of incurring thereby the penalty of a thousand hells instead of one. Such an incomprehensibly stubborn pride dwells in the noble blood of the fathers and circumcised saints. It's really demonic blood. Luther just didn't know that. They alone want to have the Messiah be the masters of the world and be the masters of the world. The accursed goyim must be servants. Give their desire, that is, their gold and silver to the Jews and let themselves be slaughtered like wretched cattle. They would rather remain lost consciously and eternally than give up this view. According to the scripture, the blood of the Jews is not noble. It is ignoble. And the saints are not the circumcised in flesh. They're the circumcised in heart. Yet no matter how plainly Paul of Tarsus or Yahshua Christ in his revelation could state it, Luther could not see it. Like all medieval churchmen, Luther had two large pricks in his eyes. The first prick was Nicholas of Lyra, and the second prick was Paul of Burgos. The converso Jew devils, whose commentaries he relied upon for his own biblical understanding. And that's apparent throughout his dissertation. That's a shame, but that also is in fulfillment of the prophecies concerning the children of Canaan and the children of Israel. Martin Luther unknowingly was one of the children of Israel. This 12th segment of our presentation of Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lives concludes part six of Martin Luther's essay. We will commence at some point in the near future. Next Friday, Christogenia Internet Radio, Romans chapter 13. Next Saturday, Explaining 2C Line, part 26. The Devil and Satan. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night.